scientists play a huge part in our everyday lives. Climate change, helping to solve the world's energy problems, improving our health, and as we've experienced throughout the pandemic, saving lives by responding with fast-tracked global vaccines. There are so many other ways we're positively affected by new discoveries. But how are scientists turning breakthroughs into world-changing businesses? It's one thing making a discovery in a lab, but taking that idea and starting and scaling up into a successful business is just as challenging. From encouraging young people into science in the first place to avoiding startup pitfalls and onto growing a business, even becoming a worldwide leader. In this series, we're going to hear from those who've built a successful science business as they share some of their secrets with us. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times, and welcome to the science of business. Facebook, Google and FedEx are just some of the well-known global companies that were founded at universities. They'd have gone through something called spinning out, which is going to be the focus of this episode. It's a big step. So what's it like to make the leap and what can we learn from those who've trodden this path before? Oxford University in England has the highest number of spin-outs in the UK and Jack Nicholas, CEO at QDOT based in Harwell in Didcot near Oxford, knows all too well the benefits of getting this kind of support. Hello Jack, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks Anna. I'd like to start by learning a bit about your background. I understand you spent a long period of time in academia. So did you always have the science bug? Yeah, sure. So I've spent a lot of my career in academia, probably the last 10 or 12 years really since I started QDOM. Going back to your question about when I got the bug for science, I can actually pinpoint that surprisingly. Maybe a lot of people can't and say it comes gradually, but I was on a holiday when I was much younger, probably nine or 10 years old with my family down in Devon and Cornwall. And we went to a bookstore and I came across a book called the Hutchinson's Dictionary of Science. And that ended up being my Bible really for the next two or three years of my life. And that's really the kind of moment where I I got my passion and my love for science and engineering and mathematics. And did you have an idea, even at that early stage, what kind of science you wanted to develop and explore? Maybe not when I first picked up that Dictionary of Science, but I think Quite quickly, I realised that for me, the physics and the physical world and understanding that was where my passion really was. And that's what I went on to study at the University of York as my undergraduate as well. So tell me a bit more about that. Tell me about your studies and which areas you focused in and, and how you decided. Yeah, so obviously I ended up in engineering. I actually started out at undergraduate doing mathematics and physics I find mathematics very fascinating. It's a very pure subject and something where it's compared to the real world where there's not really generally ever a right or wrong answer to anything. There's always a a specific answer to mathematics. So it's quite a nice thing to do from that respect. Did physics and mathematics at York. There I found that I really enjoyed the kind of applied side of that. So looking at using those techniques and things for mathematics and applying them to real world problems. And that's really how I kind of ended up migrating into more of an engineering field later on in my kind of academic career. And still at this point, were you not even thinking about starting a business? Oh, no, the the, the starting a business thing, definitely, even when I was doing my PhD, that wasn't really top of my list of priorities. I kind of, from the end of my undergraduate, realised, yeah, I had more of a passion maybe for applying that knowledge in physics and mathematics to kind of engineering problems, really. So I did a master's in aerospace engineering at Bath after that for a year. 
And then I came to the University of Oxford to do my PhD at somewhere called the Oxford Thermofluids Institute. So that institute specialises in developing technologies for jet engines, effectively. Even though there, actually, I was a bit of a black sheep. So the premise around my work as a PhD student was, could we take some of the technologies, the methodologies, the approaches from the aerospace engineering community and apply them to solve some of the challenges in nuclear fusion, of all things. So I ended up being a bit of a black sheep during my PhD. But after that, I kind of returned as a postdoc at the same lab, solving some problems for jet engine development, particularly in the area of kind of new materials that we could use to improve the the kind of efficiency of engines and things like that. And was this the research that eventually led you to start QDOT? Yeah, so what happened when I was doing my PhD is I came up with some particular technology and cooling technology. So one of the big problems with fusion is that, as you can imagine, you're trying to uh, replicate the sun on Earth. It's hot, very hot inside a fusion reactor. So a lot of my work as a PhD student was in solving some of those what we call thermal challenges around that reactor. I developed some technology, very good cooling technology that we patented, and that really formed the kind of starting bit of technology, I suppose, for QDOT. And how do you know when your research is at the point that you need to take it from a university lab to spin it out as a separate entity? Well, there's a number of things to that, I think. So there's something that's used in the technology field called the technology readiness level. And it goes from one to nine. It was actually originally created by NASA during the kind of moon programs when they were developing technology there. So one is effectively you've come up with an idea. Nine is Basically, it's ready to be deployed in an application. So a lot of university work tends to be around the one to four level on that scale. And then after that, the technology is at a state where it could be or should be industrialised and not carried on being researched in, in a university setting. So I'd kind of taken the technology to this kind of three or four level as part of my PhD. So it's kind of at that point where there wasn't much more we could do in a university setting with it. The whole point around QDOT really was looking at, at least initially, was there any applications for that technology outside of the university in an industrial application? And thinking about where you are now with QDOT, you have found other and more interesting applications of the technology. Yeah, so as I said, it was originally designed for fusion reactors. That's obviously very exciting in its own right. But as a CEO and kind of businessman side of things, obviously the fusion industry isn't really there yet. It's still in a very kind of nascent stage. And so we were really looking at, okay, we've got this really great technology. Is there any areas where we could apply it? And that's how QDOT started. And one of the first organisations we spoke to was something called the Faraday Institution. And that really leads, from a governmental point of view, the research into battery technology in the UK. One of the first things we did as a company really is we won a grant from the Faraday Institution and we looked at applying some of that cooling technology and the kind of knowledge that we had from the lab at Oxford into solving some of the thermal challenges around battery systems. And so how did you find that transition from academic, from working in the university lab to being a founder and a CEO? So one thing I would say about spinning out from a university, one of the, the benefits is the fact that you maybe don't have that cliff edge of basically having to completely give up on one job and commit wholeheartedly to the other. So there's kind of quite a nice transition phase, I would say, where we still did a bit of work at university, but we're trying to build up the company at the same time. So we had a bit of a lifeboat. So that, I guess, removed some of the direct fear from doing it uh, in the first place. But yeah, in terms of skill sets, yes, there's a big difference between being a, a PhD researcher or a postdoc researcher at a, at a lab to running a company. 
I mean, all the founders from QDOT all came from that same lab, have a very technical background. So I think one of the areas we struggled with initially as a company is trying to get our heads around thinking more like business people than technology people and getting the right people in to support us with that thought process as well. And speaking of your co-founders, I recently met your co-founder and Chief Operating Officer, Holt Wong, who showed me around your facility and told me all about what happens there. EVATOL stands for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Aircraft. In that battery pack, we're using a method called tab cooling, which as far as we know, no one else has, has attempted or successfully attempted so far. If you have an electric vehicle, you're probably aware of just how hot batteries can become when they're charging quickly. QDOT Technology, which is based here on the Harwell Science Campus near Oxford in England, is finding innovative ways to keep batteries cool, and their latest project could help the future of the aviation industry. So let's pop inside and find out more. Holt, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about what we can see around us. This is our laboratory space. So this is essentially our workshop and also experimental area. So we have some electrical and mechanical workbenches that you can see around you where we build things and uh, assemble things. And then we've got the experimental rigs, including a corner for battery-related experiments and then a corner for aerothermal-related experiments. Tell me a little bit now about the company and what the technology is that you're developing. We're developing a propulsion system for electric vertical takeoff and landing drones. Our aim is to try and seriously increase the payload capacity and the range that's currently available for drones. So pushing it to the 400 kilograms payload and 400 kilometers range sort of limit. And to do that, we're developing a propulsion system, which you can see a model of here, essentially a battery powered propeller. And it is also powered by a hybrid system to provide thrust for the airplane during flight. Can you tell us a bit about your cooling technology? So why does it matter? Why do we need to keep batteries cool in the age of electric vehicles? The secret source within this propulsor is, like you said, it's the battery pack. And in that battery pack, we're using a method called tab cooling, which, as far as we know, no one else has, has attempted or successfully attempted so far. The advantage of this cooling method is that it cools the batteries much faster and more evenly than currently existing cooling strategies. And the reason you have to do that is because batteries are extremely sensitive to temperature conditions. Too hot is very bad and too cold is very bad. And by that, I mean... Uh, it will cause accelerated degradation of the battery, meaning that the capacity will reduce faster over time, so you can only use it for fewer cycles. And in the worst case, it could cause a thermal runaway or some kind of um, explosion or fire, which, which would obviously be catastrophic. I know that you're working in the eVTOL space. So for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what that means, can you explain a little bit more about it? eVTOL stands for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Aircraft. Initially, we are targeting fixed-wing vertical takeoff and landing hybrid drone. So it would be using a combination of battery-powered electric and fuel cell or gas turbine power.
We're targeting first drones that are for cargo movements, so, and particularly these could be extremely helpful for firefighting or delivery of medical equipment and supplies because we're trying to increase the amount they can carry and how far they can fly to make them much more useful in a wider range of situations. How long is it going to take? When will we get to that nirvana that you describe? We're hoping to finish our first prototype propulsor by the end of 2023. And then as we scale up, uh, we hope to be providing propulsion systems and possibly drone aircraft by the end of 2025. And tell me a little bit about the team you have here. So you have nine people, you said. So what would they typically be in this room doing? The majority of which are engineers. And so we all work on building rigs and designing rigs and building rigs and testing them. And speaking of hands-on, let's get our hands on this here. Can you describe what it is that I see in front of me? So this is our first tab called Module Prototype that we developed with the funding from Innovate UK and UKI2S. Basically, it is the first attempt at using pouch cells with tab cooling that we've put together. It basically looks like a big black box which you can't see the internals of, but essentially it stacks 12 lithium-ion pouch cells together and then has heat sinks across them that do the tab cooling. And where would this live? In the automotive industry to try and improve the charge and discharge capability of these particular cells. The batteries themselves are still the biggest stumbling block. Absolutely. So the issues with batteries nowadays is mainly range anxiety, the sustainability of the production of the batteries, they use a lot of raw materials, and obviously safety. By firmly controlling them better, we also improve the lifetime of them and improve the power density and energy density of the batteries. And therefore, that means your pack can have a longer lifetime, and that means your range is further, and you can also push the batteries harder without being afraid of damaging them. And did you ever think that you would be addressing this kind of challenge? Because obviously when you started the company, it was in a completely different area, wasn't it? Yes, we started in the field of fusion. Our founding team's expertise is in thermal management. Uh, we've worked with Rolls-Royce and many other companies uh, trying developing cooling systems for the very, very challenging situations like the inside of a jet engine or the inside of a fusion reactor. I am a keen aerospace enthusiast. I've never flown a plane before, but it's something I've always wanted to do. And my ultimate dream would be to fly a fully net zero aircraft that we power. Day to day, what is it that brings you in here? It's the idea of pushing forward the electrification of aerospace, trying to make it sooner and cheaper and therefore more readily available for everyone rather than just a cool toy to play with. That was Holt Wong showing me behind the scenes at your lab at QDOT in Oxford. So why don't we talk a bit about how you divide up the roles as co-founders? So who does what and what are some of the benefits of having a co-founder? Yes, yeah, so definitely huge to having a co-founder from my point of view. I met Holt while I was doing my PhD at Oxford. And although the co-founder, Professor Peter Ireland, he actually runs the lab at Oxford. Peter was effectively our supervisor during our PhD days at Oxford. Me and Holt didn't interact a huge amount during our PhD days. But then when we both stayed on to do postdoctoral work uh, at the lab, we got lumped into the same room together. And a bit of a friendship started budding from that point onwards. I'm probably the person who's the ambition and drive behind the company. I was really keen to take some of the the kind of skills and technology we've been developing at my time throughout academia, I suppose, and try and apply it to tackle some of the 
real world problems that are out there. Holt was excited by the idea, but I think on his own maybe would not have done it. So he kind of got dragged along for the ride. That's worked out really well. I think as co-founders, we've got really complementary skill sets. So Holt's very much the operations guy. So he kind of makes sure the business ticks over from a day-to-day basis, makes sure everything's going running smoothly. My job really is the face of the company, really, to go out and promote QDOT and get people excited and interested about the company. What about Pisa? I know you mentioned he runs the lab at Oxford. So obviously, that takes up a large amount of his time. So how often do you get him involved in things? Peter's got 40 plus years experience in the aerospace industry. So he's a great person to be able to call on if there's something we're, we're not too sure about from a technical point of view. We wanted his advice. Um, so he's always there from that point of view. We wheel him out on some occasions, maybe when we're, we're kind of meeting particular investors and things like that, where we think his kind of extra experience helps persuade people, I guess, to all be convinced that we know what we're talking about. And how important is that network? And how much has the university been able to support you? Because as we all know, you know, getting investments, finding the right people to help drive the business forward, all of those things come from within an ecosystem, don't they? Yeah, I'd say that's one of the things that Oxford is doing very well is is the ecosystem. Through from the university, but then all the way up to, to things like the Harwell campus. So I think Oxford, yeah, there's three or four big science campuses where there's opportunities for small companies to grow in a kind of incubator type environment, which is very important. That's there. And then also, I guess, the other side of the equation is the finances. And again, Oxford University attracts a lot of interest from investors. It's easy to get put in front of people who might be interested in in investing in your company. And that, again, makes a big, big difference. So, yeah, I'd say ecosystem wise, we couldn't really be in a better position particularly in the UK, at least anyway. And Jack, I was about to just ask you about investment, actually, and how the business is funded. How have you funded the research so far? And I think it's always fascinating here about how entrepreneurs operate on a shoestring in the early days. So yes, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so there's probably three main sources of income that we have. Income maybe is not the right word, but funding, probably better one. So we obviously get an investment. So we've just recently completed a seed round that has come probably about three quarters of that funding we've achieved there has come from venture capital and then the rest from angel investors. That's quite typical for a seed funding round. We've also been pretty successful in government funding as well. So we've we've won grants from Bayes, Innovate UK, other kind of government organisations like that. We also, in the early days, we actually helped another, I'll say startup, but they've been around for a while, but there's a company called Tokamak Energy who are trying to develop fusion privately. We actually helped them from in a consultancy capacity in the early days to help solve some of the thermal challenges they were having with their reactor. They're actually one of our investors as well. And was that challenging just from a kind of workload perspective, doing that as a pair of consultants, but also running your startup? I can just imagine the workload. Yes, it's a bit manic um, would probably be the word I use. As you've alluded to, you do what you need to do to keep growing the business and keep moving forwards. And in a lot of ways, it was quite helpful to us because it allowed us to grow the team, um, which is very difficult generally, and also kind of give us a fairly stable bit of income, at least for a few years as well. Overall, it worked out well. There's potential conflicts there with what you're trying to achieve as a company and, and trying to also deliver on consultancy work as well, particularly if it isn't in directly the same field as the the main QDOT aims are, which is around sustainable aviation. 
And coming from an academic background, how did you find it dealing with venture capital investors? And I ask this because particularly in the UK, we're known sometimes as having a bit of a short-term perspective on things. So if you can't say in X amount of years, this will be commercialized and you'll get a return on your investment, sometimes they're less interested. So did you really have to get your head in that kind of commercialization game before you spoke to them? Um, One bit of advice I would give to people who are kind of on this journey of, of a startup is don't be deterred by rejection from investors. You will get rejected by many, many investors as you try to raise money. So don't take it to heart. I think I've read in my pitch deck probably 60, 70 times. You just have to keep slowly working out the formula of what investors are looking for. In terms of how I've found UK investors, I mean, I haven't got much experience with, with other investors, say, abroad in the US. But I would generally say, yeah, I agree with your comments that they are maybe not many are geared to more long-term rewards. Also a big challenge for hardware startups versus software startups as well. And I'd say more generally, the kind of ecosystem in the UK is probably quite risk adverse compared to somewhere like the US. It makes it particularly more difficult when you go for, say, a Series A, when you might want to raise numbers in the tens of millions, it becomes quite hard to find people in the UK ecosystem who'd want to part with that amount of money. And is that the kind of trajectory that you're on, do you think? Yes, we like to think so. Yeah. So we're hoping to do our Series A probably sometime in 2024. And yeah, the idea there would be to to hopefully raise that type of money and, and scale the business, develop some manufacturing capability and start delivering some initial products to customers. And so in terms of a timeline, yeah, when do you think you will be able to deliver the first physical products to customers? Yeah, so we're looking at that kind of 2024 timeline, early 2024. Always obviously caveated against getting the investment and things going well in terms of development. But yeah, that's our aim as a company. And can you talk us through some of the key flagpole moments that have to happen along the way for you to reach that deadline? From that kind of work on batteries, we started focusing particularly on the electrification of aviation. What we're really doing as a company is trying to develop uh, long range, heavy payload drone platforms and doing that with revolutionary powertrains that are emission free, basically. For us, key milestones coming up over the next 12, 18 months Next year, hoping to do a test flight of our drone using our propulsion technology, lifting probably about 100 kilograms of payload. And then we've got a ground-based test of a propulsion system for the full-scale drone that should happen Q3 next year. And then that final drone should be able to lift about 300 kilograms of payload and travel about 600 kilometers or more. Are these kinds of experiments, are those the things that get you really excited? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning, Jack? Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to be a technology guy at heart. So I love solving technical problems. That's what really gets me excited. And also seeing it come to life, I think is a big thing. I think that's one of the other reasons why I moved away from pure science and mathematics into engineering is that there's something really amazing about designing something on paper and then bringing it to life. And that's what engineering is about a lot of the times seen the progress as well i think i've obviously spent a lot of my time working as a an individual doing research so it's actually working as part of a team and having a really great team of people around you and seeing how much you can achieve with the right group of people is also like a a quite amazing thing as well and how do you go about managing a team when you haven't done that before is that a new skill set that you've had to learn yeah and from an engineering perspective yes it is i've kind of been 
leadership roles in sports teams and things like that before. So I kind of understand that responsibility of, of leadership in that respect. But I say it's something that maybe comes reasonably naturally to me. I haven't felt I had to kind of fight to be able to lead a, a group of people in that way. It's quite enjoyable. I think a lot of the time it's just treating people with respect and integrity and honesty. And if you do that and you give them something that excites them, then you generally get the best out of them. What kind of leader do you think you are, Jack? If we were to call up one of your team members right now, what would they have to say? Probably lead by example is probably the the main thing for me. Probably one of those people who's first in in the morning and last out at night uh, in the office. Probably a person as well who's quite forward thinking. So always trying to think a few steps ahead about what we might need to look at next. They'll probably say I annoy them in terms of I like to to be involved in a bit in everything, whereas sometimes I should probably step back. But I think that's as part of the process, again, about being in a startup is that as you grow your team, you need to, particularly me as the CEO, has to step back more and more from the kind of technical side and, and move focus more on just being in the front of the business, I suppose. It's kind of good and bad, I guess. It's nice to see the company growing, but sometimes I miss the uh, the nitty gritty. That's very self-aware of you, Jack. I'm not sure all founders share that self-awareness. And we've talked a lot about all of the exciting things to come for QDOT. Where are the potential hurdles along the way still? What are the challenges that need to be overcome? Staffing is a big challenge, kind of getting the right people. That's probably actually been my biggest headache starting a company. I think particularly because it takes so much time and effort to go through a set of interview rounds. And then if you get someone and then a few months down the line, they don't work out, you've not wasted, but you've spent maybe four or five months of your time. You're further down the line. You needed those skills six months ago. (laughs) And obviously time is not something you have a lot of as a startup. So that's been challenging, definitely. And do you hope that being based somewhere like Harwell will help with that? Because obviously you're surrounded by talent and like-minded people that you'll be able to tap into that ecosystem a little? Oh, definitely. I think Harwell, as well as kind of Oxfordshire in general, the university, yeah, that definitely gives us an advantage. Um, and, And I think a lot of people extortionally expensive though it is it's a very nice place to live so it also draws in a lot of people from from that respect i mean yeah a lot of people you find when we're looking to hire will say oh i have a partner here who i'd like to come and join in in oxfordshire so there's a draw to come and live in oxfordshire just generally from a kind of quality of life point of view so yeah that definitely helps makes it a lot easier to try and recruit good people and so just to finish jack if there's anybody listening now who's thinking about you know how they can spin their idea out from a university lab What's the one or two things that you wished that you had known at the beginning of that process? I think one of the first things I would say, and this is really targeted at people who are looking to spin out a kind of technology, is that instead of rushing to patent your technology and spin out the company and and get going, I'd actually say, take a breath, take a pause, spend three to six months of your time before you actually start the company looking at where your technology might be used. So going and speaking to people in industry, exploring the markets. I think one of the things that would have helped us a lot is if we'd done that ahead of time and had a much more closer focus initially on exactly what our first customer is going to be. We've almost had to find that out as we've gone along. So I think doing that before would save you a lot of time um, and effort and I think would put you in a good position straight from the off. So that, that would definitely be one point I would say. The other one is the team. We're obviously a very technology-focused founding team. I would definitely suggest early on, again, before maybe you officially spin out, 
trying to find a complementary group of people and skill sets. So it would have been good if we'd brought on board someone with business development expertise earlier on. So we had to go it alone for a few months before we found the right person for that. And that maybe slowed down us developing our business strategy. There's a lot of things like accelerator programs where you can meet potential co-founders. So doing things like that is, is probably quite a good idea at those very early stages to make sure you've got the right blend of skills and personalities to really succeed. Some really great advice there, Jack. Thank you very much for that. And I think it tallies with some of what you said about the benefits of spinning out from a university right at the beginning of this about not having the cliff edge. So whilst you've got the comfort almost of the university taking your time and figuring out some of those kind of tricky initial challenges is such a brilliant piece of advice. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, brilliant. Love speaking to you today, Jack. Thank you for joining us. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Here's a little bit of what we've got in store for you next time. When we started OD, we didn't want a C-level type structure or C-suite titles in the business, at least for now. To me, having a structure like that, it's just not fair in my opinion. That was Shafali Sharma, co-founding director of Oxford Dynamics, who'll be giving us an insight into a different approach to managing your business and how the way you lead is vital to success. That's in our next episode of The Science of Business. I'm Hannah Previtt, a business journalist with The Times. This podcast has been brought to you by ARC, the smarter partner for science, and is a Fresh Air production. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.